Remember we um, spoke about the Sermon on the Mount and we got seeing the multitude. Do you remember in verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain and when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you remember we discussed what it meant to be poor in spirit. One of the biggest problems in really in the whole of uh, the gospel teaching is people don't know what it means to be poor in spirit. They have funny ideas and funny notions and it's a great shame that people don't understand it. And we went through the poor in spirit. That a man needs to see the total depravity of his own soul and that his only hope is in God. And then we go on to the next verse which is, Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. And I want to spend this evening just throwing out a few thoughts and putting some thoughts in. Uh, the ones I want to throw out are the thoughts that you shouldn't have about mourning. And the ones I want to put in are the biblical ones. For it's true to say that there are many, many people who read the Beatitudes and have wrong attitudes. They aren't be attitudes. Uh, they're wrong. It's an attitude that should be in your being. It's not an attitude that uh, is something that's adopted. It's an attitude that's inside. It's your spirit and it's inside you. And so often attitudes are adopted people will look at the beatitudes and say well i must adopt this manner of life that manner of life and they try and live up to something and of course it's very carnal it's ugly and it's repulsive i talked about the woman who wanted to be a doormat and turn into a porcupine if you remember as soon as someone tried to wipe their feet on her and there are a lot of people who have that kind of nature and so we want to go on this evening and look at, blessed are they that mourn. It's a blessed state to mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I want to, first of all, talk about what it isn't. One of the problems in the world today is pursuit of happiness. In fact, someone has written a book called The Pursuit of Happiness, and I can't remember who the man is, but some man wrote the book. And I suppose people would be interested in pursuing happiness. And the whole world philosophy is to forget your troubles. During the war, they used to sing, pack up your troubles in the old kit bag. Hardly, if you packed your kit bag and went off to war, you'd find your troubles had only just begun. There were other people who packed up their troubles in the kit bag and were trying to shoot you. <laughs> and the whole thing was, you know, in, in wartime, World War Two, Britain had um, 
a lot of people going around and all the songs and all the ideas were trying to hide the horror of war. In other words, they were trying to do what the world calls raise people's morale. And therefore, they told you all sorts of lies and they uh, engendered all sorts of things. It's called propaganda. I call it improper. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's lies. And our nations thrive on lies. They deceive people. And that's one of the awful things of the spirit of the world. It attempts to deceive. And the people, they, they were looking on uh, going to war and they were portraying, uh, you know, uh, things as though it was patriotic. Uh, and they were telling people, you know, give your life for your country. Your country needs you. And there was great bravado. And off people went to get shot up. The country didn't need them when they came back maimed and halt and blind and disfigured. The country didn't need them any longer because the war was over. And you've only got to look at the way that country treats uh, the people that suffer in war to realize that the country only needs them for a little while, like human fodder. It's all a lie. And the world wants to cover it up. You look in America at the people that went to Vietnam and they're called veterans of Vietnam and there they are it's kind of they're a forgotten people a lot of them they suffered terrible indignities at the hands of communists they suffered terrible indignities at the hands of the army and they had a wicked president called Nixon who's no more wicked than any other president but wicked he was uh, his language wasn't what you might call uh, the right thing for the living room and um, there he was and he was doing all sorts of things and people were going off to be murdered not that the communists were any better evil they are too and yet the world try to hide it they try to forget Vietnam and it's kind of a war and a wound in America that won't go away now they've built a memorial stone, black, with just writing on it. People can go and look at the names of those who were killed. The futility of it. And yet mankind wants to brush that aside, forget the dead, you know, they're gone. Let's get on with living. But what about the maimed and the halt, the people that were told that their country needed them? It's terrible. Terrible, terrible thing is the spirit of the world. There are some that mourn, those who've lost loved ones. There are those who realize the great price that's paid. There's people in Argentina, families all around Argentina who lost loved ones, killed in a war, a futile war over islands that didn't belong to them because a general had kind of an ego trip and felt that he had to take everyone's mind off home economic problems so he declared war, a war he thought that Britain would never fight. Terrible kind of blow the whole thing is when you look at it. 
But that's the world. It tries to cover up its sores. Forget your troubles. Pack them up. Pack up your troubles in an old kit bag. Get rid of things that really upset you. Don't think about them. Today, as never before, you can go to a doctor if you've got troubles, got mental problems, got any uh, emotional problems, and they'll give you pills. Pill to forget it. Don't need to worry. Go to a psychiatrist and he'll teach you how to cope with your problems. He'll tell you, well, actually, you mustn't really think about these things. Learn how to to cope with them. Though they're there, you pretend they're not there. Or he tries to put them in a different complexion. It's called conviction of sin. He tries to get rid of it out of people's lives. No need to feel condemned about it. You know, everyone has these problems. People have terrible problems in their mind, but what they want to do is make people feel normal. Society wants to make it normal. Now it's normal to kind of be homosexual. You know, let's have gay groups. Gay vicar at Thaxted. Homosexual, wicked, evil man. There he is. He's married two men in his church, Anglican minister. Queer as a chocolate orange. And, and he's allowed to remain in the ministry. He should be drummed out straight away. But then you would have half the Anglican clergy having to leave for their propensity to that kind of thing. I mean, what an awful thing, isn't it? But you see, society wants us to accept it. The world says, well, they're not abnormal. Let's accept them. God says it's sin, but let's not look on it like that. That's old-fashioned. Immorality is old-fashioned. You know, free love is the thing. And the world is trying to smooth over things. In other words, man mustn't feel his conscience any longer. Man mustn't feel conviction any longer. Man mustn't feel that because he's got wrong desires and wrong drives in him, there's something wrong with him. He's merely different. And so the world wants everyone to be happy. Why, if people are born gay, let them be gay. If people are born peculiar, let them be peculiar. They can't help it, says the world. And so all the time they're trying to smooth over and get people feeling happy and content with themselves. And the whole of society does it. It spends its life doing it. A man who drinks too much well, you know, he's not really such a bad fellow. I mean, it's just a sickness, really. Poor fellow, not to feel too bad about it. Don't feel bad about it. Have another drink. Uh, the world kind of proffers help. Such evil in our society. But it's all under this hedonistic idea of let's have uh, fulfillment got to be fulfilled got to have fulfillment we had a cult in our country whole pop group and i remember years ago thinking that their song was so true 
They used to sing a song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And there they were, called the Rolling Stones. Well, Rolling Stones don't get satisfaction. They don't either get a moss, according to the proverb. But there they were singing, and they were expressing what the world's problem is. There's no satisfaction in anything. You can't get fulfilled. And there's some way in which there's a drive inside that needs fulfillment but just doesn't get fulfilled. And even when you do what you want to do, it doesn't fulfill you. Now that is a state in the world, and because there's that state, they then try to give you things that will make you forget your troubles. Somehow inside there's a longing for something else. You don't know what it is, but the world will give you substitutes. When a baby cries when it's young and begins to cry, some stupid mothers stuff dummies in their mouths, filthy things. But they do it, harmful as well. In later life you discover it. And so they stuff a dummy in their mouth and hope that will kind of get rid of the problem of an ad agitated child. It's some quick little remedy. And so today we have not dummies, they stick pills in your mouth when you get older. Or they tell you to do this or do that or do the other. Or don't worry, just carry on and do it. Don't feel guilty about it. Little palliatives the world has for helping you to kind of cope. God deliver us from it all. But this scripture's talking about it. And basically that's the groundwork with which we have to face this scripture. You see, the one thing the world will never encourage someone to do is mourn. Now, I'm not talking about mourning over dead people. I mean, when people are dead, you can cry. It's selfishness to cry over a dead person. hope you understand that. You're not crying because you're sorry for their state. You're crying because you're sorry for your own. People, there's nothing wrong with crying about it good to have a little emotion about it but I mean really to cry over a coffin uh, you're not crying for them are you they're dead they don't feel anything so who are you crying for yourself I always remember going to a Jewish wedding uh, the chap who used to be in my business I went there took my wife she had to stand in a different place did I take my wife Funeral. I mean, did I say wedding? Goodness me. Well, it was the same thing. Um, one they're buried, the other chap has no hope. But both the same. Anyway, we went to this funeral. I meant funeral. And I had to wear a little black hat because I'm not a Jew. I had to wear it anyway to go in the synagogue. And there they all were, the Jews. And um, you have to get them in the ground. I think it's 24 hours after the deadly deed, or is it 48? I can't remember which. Anyway, orthodox, you get them in quick, before they stink. But we have fridges these days. I haven't heard of them. Or maybe in my life, the electricity is too much. When they're dead, get them in. 
Five Ace the Money. Um, anyway, they, I went to this funeral and I was surprised. There they were round the grave and they plopped the coffin in and slung the mud on top. And that was the end of it. And then as I was walking down, someone came up to me and started cracking jokes, this Jew. And I was quite surprised. And he said, oh, no, he's dead and buried now. Forget it. It's over. You've got to be happy now. Don't you ever feel miserable about it. You know, he's gone. Got to go on living. And all of them were just laughing and joking. Walking out, I thought, well, that's healthy. That's real healthy. And you went back to the house where there was whatever you have after that, awake. I don't know what they call it in Jewish terms. Anyway, we had a cup of tea. Um... And they were they were all joking and laughing, you see, uh, and the relations all sat round, and they were uh, Jewish relations, and, and the wife was smiling as well. She can mourn a year later. I don't understand it. Anyway, the thing is that the, the whole attitude was, well, it's dead and gone. Now, the world, that type of mourning is artificial. Think about it. A lot of people mourn at funerals because they feel guilty. They feel guilty. Probably they've been such nasty people, the person that's just buried, and they think of all the things that they might have done and didn't do and the things they ought to have done. and Some of the things, anyway, they think a lot about it. And so they feel sorry about it. And if it's a close relation, you're, you're usually sorry to be rid of them and um, you'll miss them. <laughs> Sometimes if it's some relations, you might be wanting to sing hallelujah. But um, you don't because you feel guilty about that, so you cry instead. Um, and so it goes on. But the world's mourning is, is a strange thing, isn't it? it? It's really artificial. When you think about it, it's a very artificial, selfish attitude. Hmm? And that type of mourning is not what Christ is talking about here. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about the carnal crying and the weeping like that. That isn't what Christ is talking about. It is spiritual. And I want to put it in the plane that it truly exists in. We need to understand that mourning um, is something that is real. But it's real in God and it's a spiritual mourning. It's not a natural one. In the life of the church, one of the awful things was the false Puritanism that came in after the true Puritans. And they became very austere people. And they had what was called an assumed piety. In other words, they didn't have the reality of God in them. But what they had was a heritage of religion. You can go today to brethren churches. They're kind of a movement where Jayan Darby, at the beginning of the century, there was a real move of God among them. Go today, and they're so austere, the people are so miserable. It's awful. They have the look of misery and ten times death on them. And uh, they don't have 
what is reality in life. They have an assumed piety, and it's an evil thing. Uh, religious means miserable. And I used to look at people, and I used to think, well, if they're Christians, God deliver us. They're so miserable. And yet Christ says, blessed are they that mourn. It's not talking about an attitude of misery. There are enough miserable people in the world without adding to them. And it's not talking about an attitude where you get down and you, you become one of those who thinks that life must be a drudge, a morbidity. You meet people like that who are so morbid about life. They're, they're religious and morbid. And that's not what Christ meant. Though they would take this scripture and say that that's what it was talking about. The trouble is that that type of church has caused people to swing totally the other way. The young people of today have seen the religion, which is morbidity and kind of restraints and almost the steel petticoat and the... Uh, sauerkraut face and they think God deliver us from that and so you've got jingle bells, joy bells and hallelujah, hupsy daisy and down we go and it's an all kind of you know, let's have it boys Ooh! And, and it's a a kind of whack old time, get to church, let's have a rave up, you know, Woo! we're here and off they go and joy of the Lord's your strength, you know. If you want joy, jump for it, leap for it, hop for it, dance for it, bounce for it. Do anything for it. Uh, you don't get it, but you can do it. And off they go and they, they, try, and, they try and have a false kind of joy. And I, I used to go to a man and he, he called his house, Hallelujah! Uh, that was the name of his house, and when you met him, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, off he went, and um, he was all kind of bubbly, frothy, uh, and there was something wrong, because it wasn't a reality inside. And there's a lot of people who live, they've read Merlin Carruthers, who should have been the kind of magician on Arthur's round table, Merlin, and they read his books and they get this idea of praise, praise, praise. And they praise all right, but the trouble is it's not coming from inside. It's a put-on piety, a put-on piety of a plastic smile. And you go to churches and they're all kind of, there's some churches where they all have the glazed look. And, and their eyes are glazed with a kind of glazed joy. They look like vessels that have been in the oven and sprayed with a glaze. Uh, have you ever seen the Toby jugs? They look like a row of Toby jugs with a grin on. Uh, and, I mean, they look ridiculous. And, you know, they go up to you up and, Hallelujah, the Lord, nice to meet you. And, and they can't talk, Ronnie, because they're having to smile all the time. Uh, and you think, oh. They've never put their, their foot in anything that's in a farmyard, you know. They, they, they're so kind of puritanical. You think, yeah. You want to sock them, but you know that it wouldn't help them. There's something about them that 
shows you it's false. And that's the way the church has gone. Now they try and tell you uh, that, you know, come to Jesus and all your troubles are over. He'll meet all your needs. I mean, as one evangelist said, you have an open checkbook. Anything you pray, God will do. Because Jesus has done it already. And so all you've got to do is say your little prayer right in your checkbook, sign your name, and put Jesus at the bottom, and then send it up the chimney like you did to Father Christmas when you were a kid. Um, you needn't light it on the way because you won't read it halfway up. Um, and then, you know, it'll come, a couple of days later, you'll find that it'll come down the chimney, and you've got your prayer answered, and your life is going to be one joy, bliss, jingle bells all the way to heaven, and no more worries. Now that's the kind of gospel that some people are proclaiming. And yet Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. Now it's not the puritanical way of mourning where you become miserable about everything and life is hard. You don't know how hard life is. And it's not the hallelujah, whoops, you know, let's give it a go. Uh, praise the Lord. Glory to God, Woo, you know, we're, we're on the hotline to heaven, boy, hallelujah, Woo, you know, have you seen them doing it? I have. Oh. You go to a black church in America, you'll see it. I went to one, met the pastor, he said, I've got a salt and pepper church, he said, more pepper than salt. I thought, what's earth he talking about? Uh, got there and there were only... Three little grains of salt and munched a lot of pepper. And <laughs> terrible it was. It's to play, just as I am without one plea, you know, some song like that. And it would go, just as I am. And then suddenly you'd hear this, on the organ. And you'd kind of wake up thinking, what is going on? And then he'd go on gently serenading. And then suddenly, again. And you think, it was African music. <laughs> At least that's what they told us afterwards. I remember going to the restaurant. Where, you know, the meeting started, I think I told you, at half past seven the meeting started uh, with three people only there. I wasn't there because he hadn't picked me up yet. And um, we were still waiting in the hotel. Anyway, he sent someone to pick us up. We got there. And, you know, it was 9.30 before people started arriving. And, you know, about 11.30, quarter to 12, I was allowed to get up and speak. It was killing. I'd sat down, you know, they were still praising. You know, and going and all standing there going like that, looking like fairies with big grins on their faces. And, oh, dear, I preached about repentance. He took me out to dinner that night. He said, you, you've got it wrong. So what have I got wrong? He said, our church went through that years ago. <laughs> Repentant. He said, we're in the deeper things of God now, man. Oh, dear boy. So I just changed my sermon and preached coming into the promised land and getting delivered from your enemies. You know, next night he said, that's the real deep stuff of God. Actually, all I was preaching was repentance under different guys, but a silly guy didn't appreciate it. I, I mean, you know, you get that, but all they want is that 
thrill and the spill. And Jesus is going to meet you. But Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. Now what we need to know is, what is it talking about? What is this mourning with a U in? It's not mourning as though it was the opposite of night. Mourning. What is it? It's not to do with death. It's not to do with joy. It's not to do with morbidity. Mortality. What is it? It's not something that's moodiness. You have to start asking yourself, what is this spiritual mourning? What is the thing that we're blessed for? What is the attitude in our hearts that God will bless us for? If there's a blessing in mourning, what type of mourning is it? I need to know. Because it tells me whether I have the right quality of spirit and whether God has really birthed me into life. We're talking about regeneration. I need to know I'm poor in spirit. Now I need to know whether I mourn in the right way. Whether there is that attribute that God says is a grace and a blessing in my life and my heart. Or whether I've lost that which God intends. And it's important, you know, what is mourning? Have you ever sat down and thought, you might have read the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever wondered, well, what mourning is he talking about? What is it he means? Or do you just read your Bible and think, oh, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you spend all your time looking at the comforted bit and forget the mourning. What does it mean? Well, when you start questioning in your own little brain and say well I wonder what it does mean have you ever sat down and thought about it what 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 did he mean blessed day more now we saw that to be poor in spirit was nothing to do with poverty and lack of things do you know in Luke it, it says um, in Luke's Gospel, um, blessed are ye, are ye that weep now, for you shall laugh. One of the things I want to point out to you, you read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus Christ, and you will find that it will record the times he wept, it'll record the times he was angry, it will call, recall the times that he was sorrowful, it will recall the times that he spoke uh, with great anger against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It will even recall the times that he got a whipcord and drove people out of the temple. What's one thing it never records? The time he laughed. Never says that Jesus laughed. Now don't uh, think that I, I'm saying that, there's, that Jesus never did laugh, but all I'm saying is it records the time he was thirsty, records the time he wept, 
The time he was tired and sat down, but never once in Scripture do you find that it records the time and the Lord stood and laughed. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, if you listen to modern Christendom, you'd think he was laughing all the time. He had a big smile. I'm full of the joy of the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know, uh, but he didn't. I mean, surely they'd have recorded it if that was the way he was. And so, what does it mean this morning in a spiritual sense? Maybe we've got a wrong image of what Christ is really like and the way he walked on earth. Maybe you've got a wrong idea because it's been put over to you by modern evangelism and by Christians that it's one big laugh and joke. There's a, a, a kind of sense uh, of... What can I say? Frivolousness almost in, in the modern gospel. There's a frivolity, there's a, a joviality that I find unhealthy. There's a, a kind of lightness. Um, this, this superficial, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, brother, wonderful, glory to God, you know. And, and it's all kind of coming off the top all the time. And you know there's no depth of reality in the person. I loathe it. I loathe it. There's something about it that just turns me off. I find when I meet people like that, the first praise the Lord kind of runs down my spine like hammer. Kind of just turns me off. It knocks every vertebrae. I think, oh, you know, that kind of praise the Lord. And hallelujah, glory. And you think, oh, <coughs> Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. And this big smile and the facade of joy, the facade of, of happiness, the exuding of confidence, somehow that doesn't go along with the picture that was painted of our Lord and Savior, the one we're to be like. If you start reading the scriptures, you don't find there's great records of what people put over as Christianity today. So different. So, so different. You know, when Jesus went around, it was strange. They recorded the hungers, as I said, the thirst. And they also recorded the fact that he looked much older than he was. Because you remember the Pharisees in John's Gospel, it was chapter 8. When, when they, they came to Jesus and he said, before uh, Abraham to rejoice to see my day. And they said to him, what? Thou art not 50 years old. And yet, sayest thou, now he was only 30 at the time. And yet they implied he was not quite 50. So Jesus looked older than he was. He wasn't a youthful kind of shining. I believe that the, the care of his heart and the care of things, 
made him look a lot older than he was. It says that his face was marred more than any man, so there was no comeliness in him, it says in Isaiah, that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus Christ in the natural that was desirable. There wasn't exuding from him a personality that would draw you automatically. There was a spirit in him. There was a holiness in him. There was a life in him. That's a different thing. But there wasn't a, a kind of um, vivacious, full of life, exuberant personality. He was not like that. But that's what the world wants. That's what the modern church wants. They want to have the joy and the happiness. But Jesus mourned. If you look with me in... Um, well, don't bother to turn to it, but we'll just refer to it because time will slip by. Um, but in, um, do you remember in John's Gospel where it says he came to Lazarus's grave and he wept? Now, he didn't weep because Lazarus was dead, because he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. Didn't need a weep for it because Lazarus was dead. He'd come there knowing he was going to raise him. What he wept for is he saw what the results of sin were. And he saw what an awful tragedy sin brought into human life. And it touched one of his close friends and the family where he'd often sat and taken refuge. And he saw the ugliness of it and it caused him to weep. It wasn't that Lazarus was dead. He saw the implications of death. And there was another time when he stood, and it says in John's Gospel again, no, it's not, it's Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. You can read it in your own time. But he looked, and it says that he wept over Jerusalem. He said, how oft would I have gathered you, but you would not. And he wept and he mourned over them. said, you wouldn't let me. And it records his weeping over them. And you know, he wept because he saw the judgment that was rightfully theirs and was coming on them. Time after time he warned people, he said, it had been better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And there was warning after warning, and he wept. And Isaiah records he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He wasn't a man who walked about with a kind of vivacious, hallelujah, glory to God, wonderful, you know, attitude. It didn't come out. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Is that the picture of Jesus you have? And Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. Are you one of the blessed ones? Mourning over what? Well, the first thing a man truly whose spiritual mourns over is his lost estate. His heart. What's really inside him? That's enough to cause anyone to mourn. When God begins to show you, 
to look if you look with me quickly in Romans chapter 7 you'll find it depicted by the great apostle there in Romans 7 And Romans 7.21 says this, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bring me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body? of this death Paul mourned for his state Paul found a wretchedness in the carnality of his flesh and the sin that worked in his members he wanted to do God's will and he found so often there was a driving power in him that took him another way that's why he mourned and he came to the place where he cried out O wretched man that I am and there is a sense in which every Christian, every man who's truly born of God, must have come to the place of crying out in his wretchedness. And might I say that that never ceases? Don't believe you go into Romans 8 and never know that crying out because there are times when God brings to you in new realms and new areas of your life the power of sin and shows you how it can operate in your members and you cry out, oh wretched man that I am and you begin to mourn and cry out to God for deliverance from that in you that's so abhorrent. If so be, you're regenerate. If so be God's put a hatred for the thing inside you, there comes a mourning and a crying out against it. That's new birth when a man has it in them. When they find that there's something warring in their members against the law of God, which they delight after in the inward man, and yet outwardly there's something that seems to crush them. And they mourn over it. Now that's mourning. Paul put it in the words, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Thank God there's an answer. That's why they that mourn shall be comforted. And you'll find in verse 23, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is a Lord and Savior who's a deliverer. But, we need to come to the negative before we come to the positive. We need to come to the place of absolute despair in self and despair in any other before we'll really cry out to Christ for deliverance. And at that point we find the comfort of sweet deliverance in him. But oh, how rare it is for a man to truly mourn over his state to really see the ugliness, the repulsiveness of it, to see the poverty of his spirit and then to mourn over it, to see the poverty inside his life, the poverty of any good, any righteousness, any holiness, any real moving after God, and then blessed are they that mourn. First poor in spirit, secondly mourning. In Corinthians, um, 
Oh, let's take no. Let, let's stay in Romans eight eight twenty three. Look at this. Eight twenty three. Now, don't believe the people that say, "Well, when you get into Romans eight, you're delivered." For in verse twenty two, for we know that the whole crea- creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together till now, and not only they, but also ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. That's the groaning that's the mourning. That's the true groaning of a man who's born again. We groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Somehow within us, within our members, there's that awful curse of sin and the fall. And there's a groaning and a mourning. And oh God, if only I could be totally free of it forever. If only I could put off this body. The lusts and the appetites and the drives that so easy get hold of it. And there's a warning, God, I want to be free of it. And if you don't know that, you aren't born. And that's for sure. If God hasn't brought that into your heart and life and that groan into you, I doubt you've ever met God. For that's a necessity of anyone who's born of the Spirit. And this is just the people of the first fruits of the Spirit have that groan within them. It's a blessed state to know your own, to know the wickedness that lies in the human flesh and to begin to groan. That's the mourning that Jesus is talking about. It's not a pious claptrap, it's a groaning over the selfishness of yourself, the, the ideals that there could be something good in you. The pride that so easily rises up, the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Oh, how ugly. How revolting. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and that pride of life, how it grips us. And those that are born, there comes a groan within them. Oh God, I want to be free of it. I want to be free free of that attitude I want to be free of those things that drag me down and separate me from you and if you haven't got that in you you haven't got the spirit of God you can't have because that accompanies the first fruit of the spirit and it's not something at new birth that vanishes it gets stronger somehow there's a more detestation of the flesh I'm not saying that you won't fall But there's a greater detestation of the flesh and it seems that it gets worse and worse. So I say to people, when you become a Christian, your troubles begin. When you accept Christ, the war has just begun. When you accept Christ, you have taken the first step on the pathway to heaven but it's swords drawn all the way. Believe me, there's a fight every inch of the way and the devil's out to destroy you and take you back into the world and you've got to fight your way heavenward. Walking the Christian life is fighting the good fight of faith, said Paul. 
Most people, you know, as one evangelist said, it's lying on the lilo and floating down. Now you float down to hell. If you think you're going to float, it's a fight. You're going upstream. You're going against the world, the flesh and the devil. You're at war with them. And your flesh is mighty alive. And the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he devours. And the world hates you. And won't let you be a Christian if it can stop you. So there's a war. So when you become a Christian, you know, think it not strange, said Paul, the fiery trial that befalls you. Where is this gospel about joy bells all the way? Where in the Bible do you find that we've got to laugh all the way to heaven saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah? It doesn't say that. It talks about groaning, travailing. When you look in other epistles, you'll find in Second Corinthians, it goes on in chapter 5. Um, if you want to look in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, For we know, in 2 Corinthians 5, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. Paul says, look, we know we've got a body in the heavenly. There's a bodies terrestrial and there's bodies celestial. I know I've got a heavenly body. I know I've got a place in glory. And I want to get there. And I find that living here is a... It's almost a curse. In fact, it is. Your body... It's a decaying curse and mess round you. It's from there are the appetites and the lust that will bring in sin into your life. It's there that you have your problems and your fights. It's there that the enemy gets entrance. The world, the flesh and the devil, so bitterly fighting God's will. And oh, how you groan and... Sometimes you get down to pray and all you can think is, Oh God, oh God, who'll deliver me? God, won't you deliver me from this thing? And there comes a groan in your heart. And if you haven't got that, I doubt you've got birth. There is no joy bell. There is no sleigh with Rudolph riding up in front. There is no way into heaven like that with bags of presents on. The truth is, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where is that gospel preached? Where is it said to men and women, look, there is a fight, a war. There's something warring against your soul. The devil hates you and wants to destroy you. He wants to disrupt everything. He wants to rebel against God and he wants you to rebel against God. And your flesh and your body want to rebel against God. And your body won't even come into subjection. Paul said, I buffet my body. I bring it into subjection. 
takes determination, takes willpower. How often do you get down to pray and the first thing that happens is you fall asleep? You get down to read the Bible and the first thing, your mind's crowded with all sorts of thoughts. You want to spend time with God and 101 things rush in from the world. Why? Because it's the enemy of the ways of God. And there's a fight and a war. And you've got to buffet your body and bring it into subjection. I was talking to someone yesterday. There are things in your flesh and you've got to win. You've got to mourn. You've got to cry and you've got to fight. And God will give you deliverance. But not before you become one of the blessed people that really mourn. Really cry out. You read elsewhere in scripture. Um, in Timothy and Titus. You've only got to look there. Talks about aged men. In both places it says aged, aged men be sober, be grave, and be temperate. Young men, you're to be sober-minded. Where is this joy? Where is the expression of you've got to keep praising? You've got to keep laughing. You know, I think that they've devalued the truth. Now, Jesus said, you know, my joy I leave with you. What joy? Well, it talks in Scripture and tells you, well, what it means. Christ suffered crucifixion for the joy that was set before him. My joy isn't this earth at all. My joy isn't here. My joy is up there. It says, set your affections on things above. Rejoice in the things above. Don't rejoice on the things on the earth. I have a hope in heaven. The world has no hope. The world has no answers. The world has no way forward. I have a hope. A hope that can never be taken from me. A hope that's sure and a steadfast anchor for my soul. And it reaches on within the veil. For I know my forerunner Jesus Christ is gone. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And I know my place is in God with him. That's my hope. I have no hope for this earth. It'll burn up and perish. I have no hope there'll be a massive transformation of its rule. It's rebelling against God more and more, day by day. Look at the earth. Look at what happens. People say, or they did say, man improves with education. When I was a youngster, it was, I can remember, in about 1949 when... Uh, when they launched the idea of the schools all being improved and housing being improved and massive slum clearances. Hitler cleared a lot of slums. He blew them up. Um, but there was this massive slum clearance. He wasn't doing it for welfare. Um, but there was this massive slum clearance, and I remember Cable Street and places like that where they boasted they were going to make people better. Improve society. What were they going to do? They were going to give them better housing, better clothes, better jobs, better food, 
but most of all better education and if you do that you'll get rid of crime you'll get rid of social problems you'll get rid of the stigmas and you will get a utopia and they promised the people that I remember the time that ration books ceased where you could go down and you could buy sweets over the counter not needing a ration book I remember the time when white bread became a reality again instead of cardboard that passed for bread. I remember the times, and everything was going to be better. And what's happened? Well, the world's got worse. Crimes more, violent crimes more, um, society's more disrupted, the better educated are better educated criminals. They get caught less often because they're smarter. They've learned all sorts of things. We've got television now which teaches children how to commit crimes more cunningly. Um, and we find, you know, instead of better, we've got worse. Society's not better. Hasn't grown better. Where are the promises of the world? Then we have the great promise. I remember... Uh, the League of Nations. At last they'd got some better thing. The United Nations was going to stop war. We were going to have a world of peace. Declarations by politicians that at last they'd got a place where you could do something to stamp out war, even in the smaller countries. Has it happened? Are we seeing the reality of this better world? Not at all. Gets worse. And if your hope is in this world, what hope have you? You can't guarantee your job will be there next week because some high financier up above might go and purchase your company and sack everyone. Someone might decide to pass some law and you're out. Something might happen. It's all beyond our control. Financially, it's all beyond our control. Little Arabs sit in their little sandcastles in, uh, like Lawrence of Arabia and they decide what price to peg oil at. Now they're all fighting each other, throwing mud balls at each other or whatever they throw in, in Africa or wherever it is, Arabia or uh, Saudi uh, something. Sordid anyway. And there they are. They can't agree, these Arabs, little men. And so, suddenly, oil that was so expensive starts plummeting in value. Black gold. And it drops down in value. And panic sets out in the finance world. Thousands wiped off the stock market. People worried about this and worried about that. Now, if your hope's in those things, you've got problems. If you think this, this earth gives you any security, I tell you, you wait. The, the, the economies of the world are going to crash down. You're going to find there's wars and rumors of wars. In fact, everything that Christ prophesied is coming. If your rest and your peace and your joys in the world, Buster, you look out. There's no stability and it's going to get worse and worse. You think three million's a lot of unemployed? Don't worry, there's going to be a lot, lot more. 
There's going to be a rising up and a terrible, terrible mass of death. But we mourn for the sin. We mourn for the wickedness of the world. When we look at it, we mourn for it. If so be, we have the Spirit of Christ, not just for our estate, but for the world. I look at it and I meet people and I think, oh, how sick. How sick they are. How sick their attitudes. How sick their desires. Their drives. It's so ugly. I don't want to be part of it. I meet with them at times and I just want to get away from them. There's something about them that's so evil. I just hate it. That spirit of the world. And you mourn and you think, oh God, I just want to be free of it all. That's the mourning that comes from God. And what's the comfort? Blessed are they that mourn that they shall be comforted. Well, my comfort is I know that this world's but for a moment. But for the twinkling of an eye. I know that I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the next. I have comfort in the fact that Christ is in total control, his sovereign God. And he's working all things after the pleasure of his own will. And I have great comfort for that there's a place prepared for me in heaven. And I'm just marching towards that place. And that God is able to keep me from falling and to present me faultless. In the day of his coming. And when I see him I'll be like him. That's my comfort. And that's the only comfort I want in this life. I mourn over the sin. I mourn over the degradation. I mourn over the battles in my own heart and life. And I know I'm blessed. I don't get all guilty. I don't get someone coming up to me and trying to say there's no condemnation. You better believe it. I condemn a lot in my life. There's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, but there's things in my life that aren't in Christ Jesus. And there are things in your life that aren't. Aren't there? And you should feel condemned about them. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. This idea that Christendom has taken, that they've, they've taken away the conviction, and they rub it out of people's hearts and lives. They say, don't. You know, I always remember one day God dealt with me in a meeting and I, I just opened my heart and his love overwhelmed my heart. I was just sitting at the front row weeping and weeping. Not because I felt condemned but because I felt convicted about something and the love of God had just melted my heart and some silly idiot came and put his arms around me and said, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus and he kept muttering and muttering and muttering and muttering and gabbing on and what rose inside me was, why don't you shut your mouth? Blessed are they that mourn. What a blessed estate. Now it doesn't mean we go about with sad faces, not at all. I have a joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What joy was that? Jesus rejoiced in the joy that was set before him despising the cross and the shame. 
But I have to go through and walk the same way. My joy isn't full now. I've got the joy, the same joy that Jesus had. The one he left behind was a joy that he knew he was going to conquer. And in the end, God was going to bring him through. God the Father, that was his joy. It was the joy that was set before him that caused him to despise the shame. And that's the joy that Jesus left me. He didn't leave me a different joy. He said that we're going to be despised. He said we're going to be rejected. He said if they hate you, they'll, if they hate me, they'll hate you. If they reject me, they'll reject you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, he said. Told us all those things. And then he said, my joy I leave with you. Now, he was persecuted. What was his joy? Well, he knew he was going to father. He knew he was going to earn for himself the crown of a bride, which he came to die and to redeem. And that joy just kept him. He went through everything. And that joy has got to keep us the hope that when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. The hope that we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The hope where there is no hope. The world has no hope. The world has no future. The world has but days left. But we have a hope that enters within the veil as an anchor of the soul. That's what comforts. I know that everything can go wrong, but it's in Father's hand. And I know that Father cares and Father loves and Father controls. And in the end, I belong to him. That's my comfort. Doesn't mean that he'll take away the battle. Doesn't mean that he'll wrap me in cotton wool doesn't mean that I'll be protected from the attacks and the ravages. But it does mean this, that I have a hope that's sure and steadfast. What a different gospel from the gospel that's been preached in our country and our land. What a different story Jesus came and said, I've, uh, I've come to send fire on the earth. And what if it already be kindled? If only people were told. If you give up things in this life, you receive a hundredfold with persecutions. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Is that the blessedness you know in your soul? You mourn over your state. You mourn over the flesh. You mourn over your sin. It so easily besets and you begin to cry to God. Blessed are they that mourn. What a blessed estate. For you shall be comforted. Is your comfort in Christ? In the hope that when you see him you'll be like him. Is that where your hope and your trust and your faith is? Solemn joy. Holy joy. 
sober-minded and serious, intelligent joy. Not some joy that kind of rejoices with total lack of intellectual understanding. That is charismatic babble and throth. There's no substance. But the joy of knowing, I've got a tabernacle which will come. I've got a place in heaven for myself, prepared of God for me. I've got a right to eternal life because Jesus has purchased, redeemed me, saved me and chosen me. Before the foundation of the world, I know I'm going to be in him. <coughs> Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Follows on from the poor in spirit. Have you the mark of regeneration in your life? the mark of the new birth in your soul? Has that ever really happened to you? Or are you one without hope? Blessed are they that mourn. You know, the thing that's wrong is we've lost the deep doctrine of sin in the church people no longer look on sin as sin they look on it as mistakes sickness, difficulties or temptation we've lost the doctrine of true joy we've looked on it as froth and babble and we haven't seen what the joy really is that Christ has the joy of doing Father's will the joy of submitting to the Father every moment of the day the joy of knowing that there was set up for him a great crown and weight of glory that joy both of these together produce happy stable Christians but I need that in my life may God begin to open our eyes that we see Jesus as he really is so often he's been proclaimed not as the Christ of God but as man would have him, as the world would like to picture him. He's portrayed as a babe in a stable. There he is, wrapped in swaddling clothes. True, that's what he was once, when he took human flesh. But he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Man doesn't like to remember that bit. Then they like to represent him as a person who will meet all needs without question without equivocation he'll just meet your need just come to Jesus he loves you he'll do everything for you they leave out the hundredfold with persecutions they leave out the fire that's kindled they leave out the truth that men will hate you revile you and persecute you for my name's sake they leave out the truths that God spoke they ignore when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. They never tell them. And yet that's the truth in the gospel. May God begin to open our eyes to see Jesus as he really is. And not as man, as blasphemously made him. May we begin to see the Christ of God a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and yet having joy, 
a joy of knowing he's doing Father's will and walking God's way. A joy of knowing that there's eternity to enjoy the blessings and presence of God, the holiness and life of a glorious God and Saviour. We sing that song, Open My Eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus as he really is, don't you? I want to have my eyes, my spiritual eyes open to see that there is the true Christ of God. But I want to see the biblical Christ, not the one that man would have, that man would desire, but the one who was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I want to reach out and touch him and tell him I love him. Not a man who had a personality, a vivaciousness that attracted people, but a holy, righteous God. A God who mourned and wept when he saw the sin, when he saw what death really meant in humanity, he wept to the grave. When he went to another funeral and he saw a young boy being carried and the mother weeping, he restored that boy to life. And how his heart was moved with compassion when he saw multitudes in deep darkness. Multitudes of sick and impotent folk came to him. Devils cried out with loud voices, Thou art the Christ of God. Thou art the Son of the living God. Only bade them be silent. And he walked through this earth. He walked among men, not with some superficial joy, but with a deep certainty of the love of God. And he portrayed love and compassion. We sung earlier about love, faithfulness. But oh, so often when God's faithful, man believes it's the devil. When God really begins to move, very often man believes it's the devil. Because it's such a reversal of what the world portrays God as. Blessed are they that mourn. What a blessed estate. How Jesus walked on earth. His heart was so grieved at the sin at the rebellion against God's commands, at the way they fought so hard to ignore the ways of God, how they rejected God's words time after time, his heart mourned over it. And yet he had the comfort of knowing he did his Father's will. What a comfort. What a joy. How we need Lord Jesus 
to really see thee as thou art. To have the spiritual eyes opened. For man has painted a picture of thee that isn't true. Our hearts have painted a picture of thee, O God, as one who's almost a beneficial giver of all things, who cares little for thy law and far less for righteousness. We've got such false impressions. But, O Master, Thou was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How thy heart grieved over the sin and the degradation, over the rebellion. And, O oh Master, how little we know of it in our own hearts. How little we know of that morning. But, oh God, we want you to open our eyes. Give us a revelation deep within of what it means to feel the ugliness of sin. The ugliness, Lord, of the flesh, the world and the devil. Open my eyes. Open my eyes, oh Lord. I want to see a Jesus, the Christ of God, the man of Calvary, the man who came and walked, persecuted, hated, despised, rejected. Oh, Master, Master, I need a vision of that. I want to be one of those blessed ones who mourn who mourn over the estate of my own soul, over the state of the world and its ways. I want to be one of those whose only comfort is in thee. I don't want to take comfort in the future or comfort in the world. I want to find my comfort in heaven, my comfort in thy name. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. I want to reach out and touch you. I want to tell you, Lord, I love that man of sorrows. I love who and what he is. That spirit is the spirit that's lifed me. Oh God, I need that spirit. I need that heart. I need that melting within. I need that dealing. Open my eyes. Open my ears. O oh Lord, move by your spirit in gracious love. Poverty of spirit. True morning. Open my eyes. 
Lord Jesus, have mercy on each heart. Have mercy, O God, on the wrong concepts we've had. Lord, have mercy on us for the false ideas, for our selfishness, for the greed and the pride of our hearts. Lord, for the sin, the flesh that drives, the lust of the flesh that seems so often to dominate. Oh, Master, Master, come cleanse. Lord, put a cry within us to be delivered. Put a longing and yearning within our beings till Jesus, that glorious Savior, will say of us, Blessed are they, blessed are they that mourn, who cry out for deliverance day and night, who long to be delivered, who groan to put off the tabernacle of the flesh, and be clothed from heaven. Oh God, let that be thy testimony of us. Make us the people who are poor in spirit and mourn, mourn until we find the comfort of heaven in our hearts. Open my eyes. I want to see that Jesus, the true Christ of God. I want to get the true revelation of your love. Not that false thing, but the reality. Show it to me, O oh God. Quicken my heart. Quicken my life. I need thee. Thank you. 